Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker tonight received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and a doctorate in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute. In 1977, Dr. Marstrom became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has served ever since as a professor of theology. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. William Marstrom has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. Please welcome this evening Dr. William Marshner. Thank you, Sabatino. Once again, he's got me boxed in here. See, there's no escape except through there. So, I am your captive. Divine revelation about the Holy Spirit begins already in the Old Testament. And I think we should quickly review what we learn about this remarkable one whom we call the third person of the Trinity already in the Old Testament where his personhood was not yet revealed, but his function began to be revealed. You all know Genesis 1 verse 2 where the Spirit of the Lord uh, moved upon the face of the waters. Now, unless you interpret this as already an example of biblical typology, which is a fine thing to do, so that it's already, pre it's already not only talking about the original creation, but also the new creation in water and the Holy Spirit, hmm? making this passage really about baptism ultimately, um, unless you do that, uh, a great many people are inclined to think that this verse in Genesis is just about uh, some um, hmm, primordial wind uh, blowing over the primordial waters. But that interpretation was already rejected in the Old Testament scriptures. We have proof of that in Psalm 104. And again in Psalm 33. These psalms are commentaries on the creation account. Here is Psalm 104, verses 29 to 30. Thou hidest thy face, and they tremble. Thou takest away thy spirit, they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, and they are created. And thou renewest the face of the earth. All right? So the role of the Holy Spirit is essential in creation. You send forth thy spirit, and they are created. We get the same doctrine in Psalm 33, verse 6. The heavens were made, 
by the word of the Lord, and all their host by the spirit or breath of his mouth. Again, the role of the spirit in creation. And it seems especially clear from Psalm 104 that the Holy Spirit is essential to the creation of life. And we have another commentary on that very point, this time from the prophet Ezekiel. You all know this passage is Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, the Lord said to me, prophesy and speak to the Spirit, capital S. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the Spirit, quote, Thus saith the Lord God, O Spirit, come from the four winds and breathe upon these dead ones that they may live again. Unquote. Well, I did prophesy according to the command which had been given me. Aren't you glad Ezekiel wasn't like Jonah? When he was told to do something, he actually did it. I did prophesy as I was commanded. And the Spirit, capital S, entered into them. And they retook life. And they stood up on their feet. And they were an army, vast in number. Yes. Vision of the resurrection, perhaps? Vision of the hosts of the new humanity raised up from the death of sin? All possible interpretations, but what's absolutely clear is the connection between the Holy Spirit and the giving of life. We have that in our creed to this day, the third article, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Dominum et vivificantem, the one who makes alive. All right. Besides giving life, the Spirit also has a special role in giving knowledge. And again, we begin to be taught about this all the way back in the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph? who was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, whereas the Egyptian wizards couldn't do it? It says in Genesis 41, 38, that Joseph could do this because he was full of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is a spirit of revelation. Ah, Moses finally got tired of coping with the children of Israel all by himself. And so we are told in the book of Numbers that at a certain point he selected 70 elders who would help him run things. Okay? And what are we told about those elders? We are told that the same spirit that rested upon Moses, the Holy Spirit, was given to them. Okay? So the spirit of Moses 
but really his personal spirit, mind you, but the Holy Spirit that made Moses a powerful leader and prophet was given to these 70 elders. Again, foreshadowing a future in which the new people of God would also be under a spirit-filled leadership. I don't mean that all of our bishops would speak in tongues. I mean that they would have the graces and charisms of the Holy Spirit to accomplish their task of leading us as the new people of God, just as the 70 elders received the Spirit. Now, besides revelations and equipment for ministry, the Holy Spirit was available in times of emergency. I am reminded of dear old Samson, who um, had an unexpected encounter with a lion. The lion jumped on him, and Samson had to do something about it. He had to fight off the lion, kill the lion. Well, it says in the Bible that he tore up the lion as if he'd been a garment. Ripped him up. How did Samson manage this? It's because the Spirit of the Lord seized upon Samson. Book of Judges, chapter 14, verse 6. Okay. So, the empowering to work miracles is also attributed to the Holy Spirit. Gideon found out the same thing. We're told that Gideon was clothed with the Spirit of God, and when he led his soldiers to victory, this was the reason. The Holy Spirit comes into slightly sharper focus when we get into the story of poor King Saul. Because King Saul waffled, well, I don't know if he was waffling or if he was a victim of <laughs> contrary spirits. There were times when the Spirit of God came upon him, changed him, Saul was able to prophesy, but sometimes the Scripture has to distinguish between the Spirit of the Lord, which left Saul, and an evil spirit, which came into him, took him over, led him to make ghastly mistakes. Because of the connection with the work of revealing, we hear about the Holy Spirit repeatedly in the discussions of the prophets. Ezekiel, again, starts out his uh, explanation of who he is and what he's doing. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, The Lord said to me, Son of man, get up on your feet, and I will speak to you. After he had addressed these words to me, the Spirit entered into me, made me get up on my feet, and I heard what he said. Heard what he said. He said to me again, Son of man, receive in thy heart, and hear with thine ears, 
all the words which I shall speak. And the Spirit raised me up, and I heard behind me the noise of a vast tumult. That's in chapter 3 of the prophet Ezekiel. Okay, what a prophet needs from the Holy Spirit is not just a message to give. That's part of it, obviously. The prophet is given a message, go tell the people so-and-so. And the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals that message to the prophet, but that's not all the Spirit does. The Spirit also gets the prophet moving and causes him to hear the Word of God, causes him to hear it. Now, if you think about a famous scene in uh, the story of Elijah, in the old translations at least, this should become clearer. Elijah's hiding up in a cave in the mountains, remember? And the Lord decides to reveal himself to Elijah, right? And there's one thunderous cosmic racket after another, but the Lord wasn't in those. He wasn't in the tempest, he wasn't in the earthquake, he wasn't in the thunder. Then came a still, small voice. Okay. Why do we pay Bible translators <laughs> to ruin that perfectly beautiful verse by changing it into a gentle breeze? I know philologically that translation is possible, but heck, we have from the time of the ancient Septuagint onward a translation that gets it right, a still small voice. And we have often thought about this in our own lives. The voice of God is a small one, okay? It is buried under the pell-mell rush of our own thoughts. God is hard to hear. Okay? And that's why St. Thomas, in his famous discussion of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, says that every one of those gifts is a tune-up of your spiritual hearing that wisdom and that understanding, piety, fear of the Lord, these are endowments that make it easier for you to hear that voice of God. Yes. It's a matter of discernment, isn't it? If you don't know what God is like in your heart, you can't tell the difference between him and your own pet fancies. But once you know how distinctive God is through the gifts of wisdom and insight and understanding and so on, then you can begin to hear, okay? Every once in a while, there's a thought in me, there's a voice in me that's different, okay? This doesn't sound like me. This is not saying go eat and get fat. <laughs> It's not saying, go take a nap. <laughs> and uh, 
And also, it's not saying go give a speech. That sounds like me, okay? But I get this voice sometime or this thought in my head, do something nice for so-and-so. Let somebody else know that you care about them. Go minister to some person in need, somebody who's sick, needs a bowl of soup, goodness knows what. That doesn't sound like me. Not to me. I hope it sounds like you. But in other words, get an idea of what is distinctive about God through those gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then you can hear better. That distinctive message, which is soft and, you know, doesn't push itself out at 100 decibels. The Holy Spirit is not entertainment for teenagers. It's soft. <laughs> okay. And one more verse in this line. In Psalm 51, we have the famous text of the king and prophet David, where he says to God as follows, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not far from thy face, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51, verses uh, 12 and 13. Okay? Notice the contrast there between the right spirit that David once renewed in himself and the Holy Spirit, which he pleads should not be taken away from him. David doesn't confuse the Holy Spirit with his own mind or his own ambition or his own animal energy or whatever that spirit is. It's um, something unique that he prays not to be taken from him. And Psalm 143, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Let thy good spirit lead me over level ground. There are other translations of that last phrase, too, but I, I like that level ground. <laughs> Keep me off the rocks, Lord. And that is through the leading of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, I'll just mention another topic which comes up in the Old Testament because it will be very important in time the special relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Messiah. Okay? The Messiah is prophesied to solve the, the, uh, the problem of the falling away of David's dynasty, but he's going to be special in this way that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? A, um, a branch will come forth from the stump of Jesse. A, a bud will come up from his roots. And upon him will rest the spirit of the Lord, a spirit of wisdom, of understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And this prophesied person will breathe the fear of the Lord thanks to being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 40, that was, that was verse 11, uh, chapter 11, by the way, in the book of Isaiah, 
later on in, in chapter 42, we get this. Here is my servant whom I uphold. This is about the Messiah now. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have placed upon him my spirit. I have placed upon him my spirit. He will expound the law to the nations. Ah, but it's going to be a funny kind of exposition. Listen to this. He will expound the law to the nations, but you won't hear him cry out. You won't hear him talk aloud. He's not going to lift up his voice in the public place. He's not going to break a bruised reed. He's not going to put out a smoking candle. In other words, he's not messing with anything. Very gently, he will expose faithfully the law. And he will not get worn out or leave off until the law has been established on earth and the islands of the sea have heard his doctrine. Okay? I don't want to say anything too terribly polemical here, but look. I want you to contrast in your mind the history of how Christianity spread with the history of how Islam spread. Islam spreads with the noise of war, the thunder of hoofs. I don't know, the camel's hoofs thunder, I suppose. The thunder of hoofs, the, the, the clash of sabers, the sound of trumpets, conquest, power. The gospel of Jesus spreads with these quiet missionaries going through the Roman Empire under the public radar. They have been converting people all over the Roman Empire for 30 years before Caesar even knows they're out there. Okay? It's a quiet, it's a discreet communication. All right. We are told later, still, but still in the Old Testament, that this bestowal of the Holy Spirit is going to come not only upon the Messiah personally, but also upon many who will be there in his day. I will shed forth my spirit upon all flesh, says the Lord. This is in the prophet Joel. I'll shed forth my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young guys will see visions. Even slaves and servant women in those days I will fill up with my spirit. Okay? So the promise of the spirit, which is a promise of life, a promise of light, a promise of revelation a promise of empowerment is going to be intended for all when the messianic age dawns. Okay? 
and it isn't going to make one bit of difference what your social situation is. Okay? It's not only for the free, not only for the rich, not only for the powerful. It's also for slaves. It's not only for men, who are, of course, the natural masters. No, no, it's not only, <laughs> not only for the men, it's also for the women, even, you know, serving you know, scullery maids and so on. Right. That's Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In Ezekiel, this time chapter 11, we hear the famous words, I am going to give them, the Israel of that messianic age, I am going to give them a heart. One heart. I'm going to put into them a new spirit. I'm going to take away their heart of stone and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my commandments and keep my statutes. Yeah. Revelation and empowerment from God is at the same time a softening up of the recipient. When God starts to communicate to you, you begin to realize, perhaps for the first time, that you are not the rough, tough, all-sufficient captain of your soul. You need to hear from the spirit of wisdom what to do, what to think, what to choose, who to be, whom to befriend. This is instruction you need. When you begin to realize you need it, then the antennae go up. You can hear better. And the spirit begins the work of softening you up. Uh, you're going to misquote me on this, but that's fair. That's fine. Go ahead and misquote me on this. I'm going to give you a line. I'm going to say, the saints were softies. <laughs> there it is. They were the ones whom the spirit was able to soften up, taking away the heart of stone, the heart of pride, the heart of mercilessness, ruthlessness. Softies. Okay. I'm now done talking about the Old Testament. And I want you to notice that despite all we have been told, and it's a lot, nowhere has it been made clear that the Holy Spirit is a person. For all you could tell from these passages, he might be just some sort of, I don't know, causal influence from God. Okay? The revelation of his personhood will come with the revelation of the Trinity. And for that, the people of God had to wait for the New Testament, when God himself would take flesh to teach the mystery of the Trinity to mankind. All right, when we come to the New Testament, um, we meet, first of all, the Holy Spirit in the sayings of our Lord, okay, when he's teaching. 
Well, obviously, when things are written down, then the order is slightly different. We hear about the, the infancy of our Lord and the role of the Holy Spirit in his virginal conception in the womb of our Blessed Lady. Um, but um, when the gospel was first preached orally, the first thing preached were the sayings and teachings of Jesus and what he has to say about the Holy Spirit is remarkable. Matthew uh, chapter 12, verses 31 to 32, a very famous passage, but I want you to think about it in a new light. Here's what it says. Uh, well, first of all, the context. The Pharisees are having a tussle with our Lord. They have accused him of being possessed by an unclean spirit. This is an outrageous calumny, okay? And here is his reply to that charge. He says, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven them. Words said against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Words said against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, neither in this world nor in the other. Hmm? This is the famous saying, which people have been debating about for years, what is this unforgivable sin? I don't want to get into that, okay? The, the theology books are full of about six or seven theories of exactly what that sin is. I don't want to get into that. I want, you, I want to emphasize to you, you can't blaspheme anybody but God. Isn't that obvious? Okay. You're welcome to insult me all you want. Me? Insult me all you want. But I guarantee you can't blaspheme me. I am unblasphemable. <laughs> because I'm not divine. Right? Only God can be blasphemed. And only a person. Okay? A personal God can, believe, can be blasphemed. I don't even think you could blaspheme Aristotle's prime mover. He's not really a personal God. <laughs> but a personal God can be blasphemed. And so in one stroke, we learn the divinity and personhood of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And we also learn that the Holy Spirit is going to be involved in some enormously deep way in the work that Jesus has come to do, okay? You can insult me, says Jesus. You can say things against me, but you cannot, you must not, dare not speak against the Holy Spirit, okay? We're going to have to meditate on this. I don't want to try to solve it for you tonight. We're going to have to meditate on this. What is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus that makes the Holy Spirit absolutely indispensable so that you cannot go through a period of, what should I say, infidelity towards the Holy Spirit. 
you can have your rocky times with Jesus. Okay? You can turn away from the Son of Man. But if you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you'll be brought back. Hmm? What's that work of the Holy Spirit that takes the sinner, the apostate, the despondent, and turns them around, brings them back? Whereas, if you speak against the Holy Spirit, if you turn your mind against the Holy Spirit, there is no coming back. You've shut off the only way. Yes? A remarkable saying there in Matthew chapter 12. Also, of course, already in the Synoptic Gospels, we begin to hear about the Holy Spirit together with the Father and the Son. We see scenes for the first time of the three divine persons all together. We see it in the baptism of Jesus, right? Where the Father speaks, the Son is addressed and baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends from a dove. We see it again at the transfiguration, and then we uh, hear about it in our Lord's great commission. Um, go into all the world, baptizing them, teaching them all you have received, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now then, I want to uh, oh, take just a minute to give you one of my fun little grammar lessons. Okay? We always talk about baptizing in the name of. Okay? And if that were what it said in the Greek, it would say, baptize them en to onomati tu patros ke tu iu ke tu igu pneumatos. In the name, dative case. Okay? That's not what it says. This is weird. The translations don't show you this. It says, baptize them into the name. Into the name. Which in Greek is ace. To onoma, accusative case. To patros and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yes? Okay. There's no making any sense of this from the point of view of Greek grammar. So, when the Greek is funny, what we, who have been trained to be Bible scholars, have been taught to do, is look at the Semitic languages. Look at the Hebrew, look at the Aramaic, and see if there's an idiom there which has come over to the Greek in this funny form because ancient translation practice okay, was very much unlike ours. We like a translation to be free, idiomatic, you know what I mean? The ancient world translation tried to be word for word and as much as possible, even the constructions of the original. Because okay, they didn't want you to lose any flavor of the sacred original. Well, it turns out that into the name 
of is an idiom in Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay? Uh, in Hebrew, it's uh, le, which is to, shem, which is name, into the name. And it meant for the sake of. Hmm? For the sake of. We are told that um, when slaves were manumitted in ancient Israel, they would receive a bath, a washing, l'shem freedom, for the sake of freedom. Hmm? And we have many other examples of this idiom. So, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not just three names to conjure with, they are that for the sake of which you are baptized. That for the sake of which you were going to live this new life. And now it, it, it begins to make sense. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the three best things there are. Can I put it that way? Okay. The only three uncreated persons in the universe, the only three infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely perfect persons in the universe, and they're crazy enough to want us as friends? <laughs> yeah? If you think about the value of such eternal friends, then you will think, yeah, this. This is what we get baptized for. It's for the sake of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we may share their eternal life. Yes? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul has something important to say about the Holy Spirit, which again speaks to his divinity. He says, just as noble... Just as nobody knows a man better than the man's own mind or spirit which is in him, so also no one knows God better than the spirit who is in God. Yea, the spirit searcheth all things, searcheth even the deep things of God. The Holy Spirit has the fullness of divine wisdom, and it's with that authority that he reveals, that he guides, that he empowers. Empowers us to do what? Reach him together with the eternal Father and the only begotten Son. Yes? I think I've yacked enough tonight. I think I should uh, allow you to ask a couple of questions now if um, the man who makes the trains run on time is uh, agreeable. <laughs> That's what we'll do. Okay, our usual rules apply. I've been a little bit lax lately on the rules, and I'm, I've, 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 uh, I repent. <laughs> so I'm going back to my old Sicilian ways. Uh, uh, one question, no more than one question for each person. If you've got to take a breath in the middle of your question, it's too long. So one sentence long. And that sen the question has to do with the topic at hand. And we have to have a question mark on the end of your sentence. 
And we're so blessed in the Arlington Diocese, I think oftentimes we take what we have for granted, such as Dr. Marshner, but, I mean, you're not going to get this anywhere else. And I think that's why people are, are um, visiting us from long ways away, and also uh, um, Dr. Marshner. <laughs> All right. Let me remind you of my next rule, and that is turn off your cell phones if you're not a doctor or a priest, and that doesn't include theologians. All right, first question. Uh, Dr. Marshner, if this is the formula, uh, you said into the name of, why do we use in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit when we baptize? Um, well, I think that uh, the, the force of that old Semitic idiom just got lost. And the, the grammar was just, over time, unconsciously improved. I mean, it's perfectly correct that we are baptized in those names. Uh, they're essential parts of the baptismal formula, so there's nothing wrong with the way we say it. It's just that when you go back and look at the sacred original, there's this little surprise in there. I have a question about the, uh, the Holy Spirit. And uh, when our Lord Jesus left us, he said, I will leave you the Spirit. And there's always been a debate, or from what I've understood, and also in my own thinking. Now, who is the Spirit? Does Jesus leave his Spirit among us? Or is this really the separate entity? He must, from what you've been read us from Scripture, and from what I have gleaned from this, the Spirit comes from the Father, so even though Jesus leaves us, it's, it's not, am I correct in saying it's not his spirit, Jesus' spirit, that he leaves with us? In the relevant sense of the question, you're absolutely right. Uh, in the relevant sense, it's not the spirit of Jesus. Okay. But it is the Holy Spirit so much associated with Christ both in his visible mission and in his divinity, that um, we can use the idiom, the spirit of Christ, as a way to describe the Holy Spirit. Okay? But the distinction between them is, is brought out, as, as you just said, by those wonderful verses in John's Gospel, which you see I didn't get to tonight. The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Okay? This is the point. The, the, he, he never says the Holy Spirit proceeds from me. It's the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, the Spirit of truth. And he says, it's lucky for you, pardon my informal translation, it's lucky for you that I'm going away. Okay? Because if I weren't going away, the Spirit wouldn't come. But when I go, I'll send him. Okay? Now, nobody can send himself. The Holy Spirit has to be another person. What then do you mean by the Spirit of Jesus? Can you just clarify that so there's no misunderstanding? Oh, the Spirit that Jesus told us about. The Spirit with whom Jesus baptizes. Okay? John says, I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's this special connection. Jesus is the Messiah, the one upon the home. The Holy Spirit was prophesied to rest. Just as we talk about the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Moses in Numbers. 
a Dominican had described the Holy Spirit as the love between the Father and the Son. And would you comment on that? Well, uh, let's put it this way. Calling the Holy Spirit the love between the Father and the Son is something like a handy oversimplification. There is an eternal act of love that's part of the divine essence. All three persons share this love. But the procession of the Holy Spirit, this is St. Thomas's interpretation anyway, the procession of the Holy Spirit is like the emergence of an aspiration in somebody. The Holy Spirit emerges in God the way an aspiration to be with your beloved emerges in you when you're in love. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not the act of love. He is the the imp okay, the impulse of love. Let me put it this way. Suppose I love you and you love me. I'm doing an act, you're doing an act. Okay. Isn't it also the case that something arises in us in connection with that act? Don't we also use love as a noun? Don't we say, there's love in me now. Love has arisen in me. That's the sense in which the Holy Spirit emerges in connection with the love of the Father and the Son. Uh, can you briefly discuss the difference between Catholic and charismatic Protestant understandings of the Holy Spirit and how Catholics might use the Holy Spirit to bring especially the Pentecostal types into the church? Okay. If you're dealing with traditional Trinitarian Protestants, there's really no theological difference between us and them about the Holy Spirit. They just don't indulge in too much thought about the, um, the processions in God and so on, but, but uh, we don't disagree over that. Uh, where the uh, disagreement may come is over <clears throat> what St. Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians after he has talked about the many charisms of the Holy Spirit which were highly active in the ancient church. Okay? Tongues, interpretation of tongues, inspired speakers, and so on. Paul took this for granted as the sort of thing that went on in the church. But then he said that I show you a greater way, a better, a better thing. And then he talks about supernatural love for God, the infused virtue of charity. Yeah? Catholics for a long time have set little store by the flashy gifts, insisting rather on the inner work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit does in souls. God pours out his love upon us through the Holy Spirit. It's love of him. 
Okay, that's what the word charity originally means in theology. Love for God. Towards God. He pours that out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's the sanctification that really matters for everlasting life. But this is not to say that we have ever considered the semi-miraculous or flashy gifts inappropriate. They have appeared from time to time in the history of the church. They have appeared from time to time in the lives of the saints. I think St. Philip Neri is a famous example of that. Maybe even St. Dominic. But a number of the saints have had remarkable ways of talking to God and about God and have shown examples of prophesying, oracular speech, and so on. So it's not something that we've ever sneezed at. Please don't confuse the Catholic position with the position of certain high and dry Presbyterians who maintain that the tongues and other workings of the Holy Spirit like that were only for Bible times. Would you please tell me where it says in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is going to shut these things down as of date dot, dot, dot? How in the world does anybody know? Look, doesn't the Bible say the Spirit bloweth where it listeth? Blows where he pleases. You never know what the Holy Spirit is going to do. You could have knocked me over with a feather when he all of a sudden stirred up a charismatic movement in the Catholic Church on the heels of Vatican II when we were being pestered by liberal theologians who wasn't sure there was a Holy Spirit anymore. They weren't, they weren't sure. Because after all, the Trinity, is a, the Trinity is a model. A model. I think that the Holy Spirit can be expected to do things in the church in times of crisis. Okay? You want my opinion, the late 60s and early 70s were a terrible time of crisis in the Catholic Church, especially in the United States. So, maybe that, but you can't explain, and you certainly can't predict what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And I have to say one more thing about this. <laughs> you all know the Paulist order? They were founded by a convert called Isaac Hecker. He was a, a Protestant fellow and deeply interested in philosophy spent his youth washing dishes and trying to read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason above the sink. <laughs> True story. Well, I'll, that, that would destroy anybody. Anyway, Father Hecker um, became a Catholic and put out some books which frightened the Holy See. Certain things in those books were brought to the Holy See's attention by critics in France, and then the Holy See addressed a letter uh, to the United States uh, rejecting or criticizing or questioning some of Hecker's views. And I'm not going to get into it all, but the main thing that Hecker said, for which he was, you know, trounced, was the claim that from now on, now that we have reached the middle of the 19th century, from now on, the Holy Spirit is going to work in a new way. Aha! Uh -huh. Used to be that the Holy Spirit would work through sacraments and through the hierarchy, but now he's going to work through individual hearts. 
et cetera, et cetera. There were other aspects of Hecker's theory, but the point is this. Where in the world does it buy, say in the Bible that the divine spirit is going to change his modus operandi in 1850? On what basis could he possibly know that? You cannot predict what the Holy Spirit is going to do, and so you shouldn't be closed-minded about it on the right, like the high and dry Presbyterians. And you certainly shouldn't be overly enthusiastic about it, like uh, the Pentecostals, who, um, uh, in my opinion, put too much emphasis on the gifts which do not directly contribute to personal sanctification. In our theology, it's perfectly clear, in our theology, charismatic gifts are given to a person not to make that person holy, but to make him a better, or her, a better witness to somebody else. So it's, it's an other directed. And the gifts are given in order to stir up faith in other people. So if somebody has the charism of being able to work miracles, like healings, like Padre Pio and so on, then that wasn't to make Padre Pio holy, but to improve and stir up the faith in the rest of us. When it comes to uh, prophesying, just remember that God gave this gift to Balaam's ass. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Well, we haven't ended a program like that before, but, you know, it's Dr. Marshner. So we'll see you uh, same time, same place, right here uh, next Tuesday with Dr. Marshner. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.